You are listening to The Mallory Report, a live radio show that ventures into the mysteries of life, as well as the hot topics of the day, either political or business. I want to welcome everybody to The Mallory Report. Before I forget... Nick Redfern will be joining us January 25th to talk about his uh, Rendlesham Forest UFO Conspiracy book is back out. I'm just excited to talk to Nick. Um, big promo going on with that on the website. But that's not why we're here right now. We're here right now to to doc, talk to Devin Price, Dr. Devin Price. That's why I was stumbling it all over it because it, it does, does that lead me to that. And his and the new book is Happiness Does Not ex- or Happiness. Laziness does not exist. Man, I'm all over this. Laziness does not exist. Let me tell you, I've had this book in my possession probably two months now, and I I picked it up and I I read through it pretty aggressively the first time. And let me tell you, I'm gonna first. Let me tell you this first and foremost. It's a good book, and everybody should have a copy of it because I don't want to. I don't want to offend you by saying this, but I feel like you hit me right square between the eyes when when I read this book. Um, because um, of some of the tenets that you talked about in here. So let's, let's get into it. Um, because I grew up in that, you know, you, you mentioned some people in there who grew up in that, you know, don't take a break, just keep working, all this other stuff. And like I said, there's a number of stories in this book that kind of I just kept feeling like you were talking, you know, like basically changing parts of it and talking about my life and all these different things. So let's start with, let's go back way back. Well, I don't want to say way back. I don't know when you started writing this book. But what made you want to write this book? So the thing that made me want to write this book mostly, I, and I do talk about my own struggles with kind of unlearning this fear that I was secretly a lazy person and learning to actually stop overworking myself. But the real thing that kind of set me on this path was being a professor who teaches working adults, so people who usually um, they are people who they went to college on the quote-unquote traditional timeline, and then something got in the way, and then they dropped out. And now they're back as adults, and they're working, working a full-time job. They have kids. They have elder care responsibilities, all this stuff. And they're taking my classes. And I was just constantly struck by how apologetic all these students were that I had that with some of the most busy people I've ever known. But somehow, anytime they missed a deadline or, you know, their kid got sick or their car died, they were so apologetic to me and so afraid that I would think that they were lazy and that they weren't committed to their education. And that is something that it just, it just made me feel so protective of these people who deserve to be really celebrated and valorized for being really hardworking and who nonetheless believed that they were lazy. And a lot of them had other professors who believed that about them. And so I, I wrote an essay kind of all about that, about that population of learners and how they weren't lazy when they struggled and procrastinated. It was, they were struggling. They were overloaded. They were doing too much. And that essay connected with a lot of people. Um, it, uh, it has like 3 million reads on Medium. So that's when I kind of realized like, okay, this is a problem that's way bigger than just the students that I see. This is a really big cultural problem and I need to dive even more into it. So as you delve into it now, see this, this, this part fascinated me because I never really thought about where it came. I mean, because I mean, we've, we're all familiar with the term laziness, right? But where did that actually come from? Yeah. So the word lazy has two roots. It has an old English root and it has like a low German root. And basically the combination of root words means feeble or weak and morally suspect. So together, the root of of laziness, and really what we usually mean when we throw that word around to disparage someone, is that someone lacks the drive or the energy or the willpower to succeed, and that also this weakness in some way makes them basically evil or or sinful. And, um, And even when you add those two things up, they don't really make sense, right? Like if someone's tired, if someone's in a weakened state, how is that evil? How, but that, that double speak is really, you know, just baked into how we think about laziness and talk about laziness and who we decide to write off as lazy. 
Yeah, because I know this past year, I've been over past year, I guess now, um, dealing with some medical issues that have kind of slowed my steps, so to speak. And so I felt lazy all the time because I wasn't doing what I thought I should be doing. So, like I said, this book kind of hit me in a different way than probably it would most people. I guess it, it came at the right time, though, because I did need to realize that, you know, when you are doing the most you can do, that's doing what you can do. Right, yeah, and we've just had it so ingrained into us that uh, any physical or mental feeling or limitation that kind of gets in our way of being productive, we just immediately want to, like, argue with it. Like, oh, I'm not really getting sick, or I don't really need a nap. Like, that's so embarrassing that I feel tired. It's so shameful. And so, yeah, it just really goes to show just how ridiculously ingrained that is in us that you could be dealing with health issues, things that are clearly like verifiably real and and have an impact on how much energy you have and like recovering from a health problem is a full-time job for your body you know and to still feel lazy on top of that it just tells you how how ingrained in us it is to to hate laziness and to think that our feelings make us lazy yeah it, it does blow my mind but okay so now that we've Man, I hate to ju- hate to jump around in the subject, but now that we've identified the issue, how do how do we get out of that mindset, and how do we work forward to um, change our cult? Change. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to change the whole culture, but we're going to like change my culture. I guess is what I'm looking for. How do I get myself out of yeah, feeling yeah. so lazy? Yeah, it's so tricky because I think you're right to kind of kind of say, oh, we have to change the culture, but we also have to have, you know, individual steps that we can take to kind of help make life bearable. Because I think it is something where we need things both from the top and from the bottom, right? So um, one thing that I talk about a lot in the book is how having compassion for other people and practicing thinking about why people are doing what they're doing and what need they're trying to meet when they make a choice that looks quote-unquote, like, bad or, like, not optimal to us, thinking about, okay, how, from that person's context, might that choice make sense? And can I have the humility to just assume that this person is doing the best with what they have available and what they need is support and not judgment? I think for a lot of us, it's way easier to practice thinking that way about other people first. And once we start extending that compassion and curiosity to other people, we kind of start getting more used to practicing it for ourselves. Um, And I also talk about some more kind of concrete tips in the book for if it's in the workplace where you are just having way too much demanded of you and you're not getting enough credit for the work that you're doing and how busy you are, finding a way to really document and get credit for yourself all of the things that you're actually doing. Because I think a lot of the things that keep us busy all day, and not just at work, really in our lives in general, we don't give ourselves credit for. Every little email we send, every time we teach someone how to use a new piece of technology, every conversation we have, that's important work, that's growth, that's developing skills, that's supporting other people. There's just so many things that that fill our days that we think of as wasting time. So finding ways that, you know, in the workplace, getting recognition for that, and then more generally, recognizing it for ourselves and giving ourselves kind of emotional and psychological credit for, hey, I actually had a really full day today. Maybe I didn't get that much writing done, but I had a lot of really important conversations or did some really important daydreaming or, you know, I did my laundry and that's something I need to stay alive. So I should actually be glad that I did that instead of ashamed that I, you know, wasn't productive enough. Yeah, and I'm sitting here thinking, like I said, I feel like this hit me right square between the eyes because I I can always say, yeah, go ahead, take the time off. Do what you need to do. You be you, right? Except me, when it comes to me, it's like, yeah, get back in there and finish what you need to do. Like, don't you can't take that break. You need to get this work done. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We hold ourselves to such a high standard that we would not think it's fair to other people or humane. Yeah, it's it's just it's it's funny this like like I said it's just amazing to me when I when you put this in front of me and I went oh yeah that that's cute and then I started reading it and I went I was reading these stories I'm like man this is not fair this is this is this is me I'm the one that's overworking and you know holding myself to the as you said higher standard and not you know not not taking a breath and not understanding and 
and it's so ingrained i guess that's the that's the the strange part of it all um now now you started when did you start when did the well, you said you wrote an article about that when was that that article came out in uh, march of 2018 okay yeah. so, cuz I, I, I was thinking about as cuz this year has been such a um, Cluster, and I was going to use the other part of that word, but I'll clean it up nicely. Uh, <laughs> right? So throughout this course of this year, I mean, there have been people who have been working from home, and life has changed tremendously. And I feel that some people feel they have been more more lazy than normal because they aren't getting up and going to the office and doing all these traditional things. How do we overcome that? Well, the first thing that I want to say about that is even though a lot of us do feel lazier during the pandemic, it's really an illusion. Like most people are actually getting a lot more done. It's just that every waking moment could in theory be devoted to work or something productive. So we feel really guilty that we're like not taking advantage of the moment. Um, this, this study came out in Forbes that showed that um, worker productivity across the U.S. was up like 40 percent this year. People are doing a lot more work because they don't have a commute. They're just kind of shackled to their desks at home um, and all of these things. And so I think um, I think recognizing that our perceptions are really tainted by our culture and by the really ridiculous standards that we hold to one another is a really, really important element here. And starting to find ways to reframe how you look at your life and not thinking of, what can I do with this moment that justifies me being alive or that proves that I'm a good person? Um, because, you know, I, 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 I get it. I, I succumb to it too, right? I think, oh, I'm done with work for the day. Now I should open up the Duolingo app and practice my Spanish. Or I should, you know, read a book that's going to help me for research when I'm writing my next book. And it's like my brain is so exhausted. I'm not a bad person for not having the energy to continue doing those things. And in fact, psychologically, really, really need time to do things that are so playful is, and exploratory. So this isn't exactly a question about the book, but it kind of just popped in my mind, and I think you probably have an answer. How do we separate, um, because if we are working from home, how do we separate that time? Because when you're working at the same desk or work, you know what I'm saying, like there's, there's no physical gaps, because I know there are times, again, this laziness fear factor fi- factors in, that you'll check the emails, you know, six, seven, eight, nine o'clock at night, just because you're, you kind of feel like you're in the office still. I guess for the lack of a better explanation. Yeah, yeah. I think trying to find some way to divide up uh, physically and behaviorally work time from time off is really important, and it's so hard right now. But to the extent that you can have a workstation that you're at when you're trying to complete work tasks. That, that you then step away from and don't go near <laughs> in the evenings or on the weekends or whatever your time off is. There's kind of an increasing talk now about people taking a digital Sabbath of sorts and having like at least one phone-free day of the week because that does seem to help reset people's attention spans a little bit um, and help make it easier to sit down and do something slower and less stimulating like reading a book or drawing or just daydreaming. I think those things can help um, even just trying to demarcate, uh, like changing the lighting or deleting certain apps from your phone during certain times of day can kind of help. But it is really hard to kind of be accountable for those things right now because there is so much work-life interference and creep. Um, and if you can try and reset the norms in your workplace where you just don't respond to emails after a certain hour, you can really help make a lot of people's lives easier. But I also understand that in some in some situations people don't have that kind of freedom yeah i I, i'm gonna try i have been trying to not even days just periods of time like i can find myself just being so macro like i'm afraid of missing anything that happens in the world at times it seems so just getting away from it for a couple hours and days i mean i don't know i don't think i can do a day I'm probably that addicted to it, which is scary to think about when you say it out loud. Um, I'm going to take a second there and pause to think about that. Uh, now that I said it. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's so 
so different, but it's also the same. I guess is where the next thought that pops in my head because we've all been doing this forever. Well, not working from home, but just having these borders. But now we, we just, for some reason, we forgot to put them back up, which just kind of gets to me. Now, I, I yeah. didn't. I was gonna say I, I didn't think about this, but I seen it in the talking points, so I'm I'm gonna go there because I don't see the connection. So I'm, I'm gonna have you fill me in here. How the the laziness rely may have helped spread the virus. Yeah. So um, so one thing about our culture's hatred of laziness and the laziness lie, as I talk about it in the book, is this idea that we're gonna blame individuals for systemic problems, right? So I talk about, you know, the example in the book of, for example, people don't want to give money to a homeless person or they don't support uh, social welfare for people who are in poverty because, oh, those individuals are just lazy and if they worked harder, they wouldn't be in that situation, right? That's a very kind of common outlook a lot of people have about a lot of social problems. And with COVID, um, we've seen in the U.S. uh, judging individuals for not being virtuous enough not adhering to mask and hand-washing protocols well enough, having private hangouts and kind of judging people for making individual bad decisions, quote-unquote, when what's really driving the spread is the lack of systemic support that makes it easier for people to make the, quote-unquote, right decision, right? So I'm here in Chicago. Anytime COVID cases take a spike, our mayor uh, gets on social media and talks about how, about like basically scolding people for having private parties or hanging out privately, uh, with friends and being lazy in their kind of uh, COVID protocol, when really we can see that the spike in cases tracks with things like us not having enough testing, us still really not having any contact tracing compared to other countries, and things like when our bars and restaurants open up and people were kind of forced to go back to work. So um, in America especially, I think focusing on policing individual choice means we ignore the big-picture supports that we actually need from governments and, and organizations to help support people in doing the things that they need to be doing. And I, I have always, especially with the schools, I've been hearing the, uh, the social impact of not being with their peers. And I, I, get, I waffle back and forth on that because, I mean, these kids are talking to each other on their Xbox every day. It doesn't matter if they're in school or out of school. It's just a different bunch of kids. I mean, they're more connected today than we would have been, I'm doing the math here, 20 years ago when I was in school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but it is also a, just, a, I think, I can't imagine what it would be like to be young and to be this isolated while your brain is still really socially developing. Um, so I really can't blame any kids who have taken risks because even though it is a public health problem and it has consequences and I'm not, you know, condoning it, I understand why people who don't have enough social support right now do that. Um, and one um, conversation that I've had lately on my on my Instagram, actually, with a lot of uh, essential workers is a lot of essential workers, they're working in these really stressful situations, really dangerous workplace situations where they have to worry about COVID exposure. And so then to help decompress, they hang out with their coworkers socially after work. And, um, and then they get demonized for partying and spreading COVID when they were already subjected to risk. So I think it is this thing where, you know, you do want people to behave responsibly and judiciously because, you know, we're in such a crisis, but we point our fingers at such the wrong people and some of the people who are suffering the most. And it's like, of course, you're not making perfect decisions when you're, when you're in that kind of spot, you know? So let's, let's pull back uh, pre or post COVID, not in this present window, but uh, I, I mentioned the kids, right, in the school, and there comes this uh, argument that, you know, they're not working hard enough in school or not doing enough around the house or whatever. Where does that line fall when you're trying to instill work ethic, but I guess the balance in your child? Yeah, so I look to the research on in, intrinsic motivation, so what internally drives someone to do something. And what a lot of research shows of this is that as soon as you take something that a person is passionate about or a kid is passionate about and you tie it to a system of rewards and punishments, so, you know, grades, payment, whatever, it saps their internal motivation to do that thing. It no longer becomes a true passion. It's just a means to an end. Um, So, you know, as an instructor, I can be really flexible about rules that I think are arbitrary and are just 
putting difficulty in a person's life because we associate difficulty with rigor, right? So if someone needs an extension on an assignment, if they can communicate with me and we can kind of problem solve, I'm really open to that. Um, if people, you know, need accommodations in the classroom or in a class, I'm really open to that. And I think instructors should be. Um, but that isn't the same thing as not encouraging people to question their beliefs and really challenging people to make sure that they have evidence for claims that they make and that they're doing good quality work. Like I can be a real stickler on those things that are like intellectually substantive and making sure you actually have evidence when you're making a claim. Um, so I think for me, that is where the line comes down, really trying to foster people using their intrinsic motivation and passion to do the things that matter the most to them in life and then encouraging them to be really careful thinkers and responsible people rather than just having a bunch of rules that are just put in place um, to make their life difficult just for the sake of it. So before I forget again, because I almost did, oh, I'm bad at this stuff. Um, I'm joined tonight by Dr. Devin Price, the author of Laziness Does Not Exist. Where can, where can people find the book and then find you? Uh, so the book is, it comes out January 5th, so it, it is pretty much anywhere you can buy books. Um, and my other writing is at devonprice.medium.com, and that's D-E-V-O-N-P-R-I-C-E.medium.com. And then I'm, I'm on all the social medias at, um, at Dr. Devin Price. Yeah, on Twitter, for those people who love me, I mean, love Twitter. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I've got the loaded question of the night, I think. We're, we're, we're coming off this year that has been so different on a from a COVID perspective, an election perspective, and a lot of people have felt anxiety, I guess. All this stress, anxiety, all that energy, all that kind of stuff going on in any, of the, any or both of those circles plus whatever else is going on in life. And now we're we're almost past the holidays, and I, I think you've used the word burnout in the book several times, and I'm just kind of feeling that there's going to be a lot of that come middle of January, mm. where you know every, every you know all the the kicking and screaming about the election will be hopefully over by then, and just kind of as we're starting to middle of winter. I mean, there's so many factors in here, so I'm looking for how do we get give ourselves that that break that we need so we can recharge and be better people. Yeah. It's, it's so hard, especially with the trauma of COVID. And I think we're all going to take a big hit. There is this, this thing with trauma where it's once you get safe, once you escape the unsafe situation, you really crash and really feel the full force of how hard, how hard it was. So I think a lot of us are still in a state of shock about everything. Just knowing that is, is the first step, I think. And the other big one, um, and it's a, it is a big one, is to ask yourself, what are the things that I do just because I think I should and I actually don't care about them and it's not putting any good into my life? And that should could mean anything from ways that you think that you're supposed to look and to dress, ways that you think your home is supposed to look when you're on those work Zoom calls, um, weight that you think you're supposed to lose, exercise you think you're supposed to do, um, rules you, you think you're supposed to conform to about what your life timeline and goals are supposed to look like. It's really heady stuff to really start sitting back and saying, do I ever want to buy a house? Do I ever want to have kids? What do I want to be as a person? And I think when we drill down into those questions, we start to figure out what are the things that I can finally give myself permission to let go of. And it's okay if my life doesn't look like the ideal that I've been sold. And, and how much time is that going to free up for you if you decide, you know what, I actually don't need to exercise every day or, you know, I, I don't actually need to cook meals every night. I can, I can make things in the microwave. Nobody's going to arrest me for that. And, and I think that can really change a lot, but it also is a really wide reaching question. And I know that for myself, I'm still like every day practically finding some new should that I've been letting guide my life more than it more than I really wanted it to, that I have to give myself permission to kind of let drop. So let's, let's back that up a step and work into that a little bit. How, how should somebody start a, that process of assessing, uh, assessing what matters to them 
in the in the big picture versus what they think matters to them. Yeah, so there's a couple exercises in the book that I think can help depending on if somebody's a workbook kind of person. One is a uh, values clarification exercise. So it's just a list of kind of qualities, um, community, um, charity, like values that a person can stand for. And it's a long list. And you can't really, nobody can have a life that fulfills all of them. Family, community, being politically engaged, being candid, all of these things. So looking through that list and really thinking, okay, what are the, you know, three, maybe five values that are the most important for me here? And does my life really embody those things? What are the times when I feel the most aligned with those values? And I think the other piece, um, and it's, it's another thing kind of described in the book, is keeping track of your time and how you spend your time at first in a purely descriptive, non-judgmental way. So having an assumption of all my time right now is already accounted for. I might say that some things that I do are wasting time, but that is me spending time in some particular way. So even if I'm just sitting still, that is a thing that I did for an hour. I just sat still and stared at the wall. And looking at how you use your time and letting that be a guide of, let's assume this is the most I will ever be capable of. Let's assume that I'm actually right now doing too much. Which things on this schedule do I feel good about? Which things can I get rid of? Which things should I put at the beginning of my day or my best hours of the day? Um, and, and, and what am I willing or capable of kind of sacrificing to make sure that I, I have a life that actually feels vibrant, alive, inspiring to me, which is really hard to feel any of those things during COVID, admittedly. So, you know, you can have a lower bar than just what makes me not feel annoyed all the time can also be a good goal. Yeah, I, I mean, I sit here and I always tell people, hey, if you want to do it, we'll find time to do it, right? And then you just go, I don't know what, I, you know, because it's, it's that alternative to saying no, I guess, right? It's just that, yeah, I'll make time for you, right? <laughs> At some point, I, I guess that's my problem, right? At some point, I've got to tell people no, too. But that's just me rambling here for a second. So for those people out there who are going to start hearing no in the near future, ask now? Oh, wait. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> get in before I learn boundaries <laughs> oh that's not good um, boy I, I've probably um, said too much about myself t- so far but that's okay been, I, like I said uh, through the almost 10 years of doing this show your your book has challenged me in ways that have made me feel rather uncomfortable but I'm learning a lot from speaking to you and have read and having read the book. So thank you. Oh yeah. Thank you so much for, for saying that. I'm glad it's connected with you in a, well, no, also I'm, I'm sorry that it's uh, dragging you a little bit. Too. <laughs> oh, well, but that, uh, that's a sign of something that I don't think you want somebody to pick up this book and just read it and go, Oh, that was cute. Right. I don't think. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather have more than that. Sure. Yeah. So I guess what's with go back into this the, the the core issue of this has the meaning of laziness because you, you said it goes back to the the Puritans so that goes around for a while has the meaning changed through the years or different generations how they've looked at it or are we just still kind of in that deep hatred of it I guess for the lack of a better word. Yeah, it's picked up a few new associations and stereotypes over time, kind of depending on who gets demonized and who gets, like, stereotyped as lazy, depending on a particular period of time. So, you know, around the Puritans era, someone who was lazy was just someone who wasn't contributing, quote-unquote, enough to their community, right? Or someone who wasn't pious, right? They equated working hard with being a very um, blessed individual. Um, And... Not too long after that, laziness also got really wrapped up in kind of justifying enslavement in, in the U.S. and kind of um, portraying black enslaved people as people who needed to be worked really hard because they didn't have moral fiber and they, they had to be kind of taught to not be lazy. And, um, and after abolition, that also uh, took on a slightly different flavor, but much the same thing, where to kind of keep... Uh, kind of poor white laborers from joining forces with um, newly freed black laborers, this message that, oh, you can't trust one another, this group is lazy, this group is trashy, all of those kinds of messages were very politically charged. 
And then um, moving into the more modern era in recent decades, laziness has been so linked to things like being fat, right? It's become a very an image of a lazy person is, is um, often like in political cartoons to show that someone is intellectually lazy. The artist will draw them as fat. So it's also become about demonizing certain bodies and even ability levels. So it, it is just like uh, this snowball, I think, that kind of picks up different prejudices that you roll over it, you know, it kind of absorbs it into itself. And um, But at the core, it's almost always taking someone who's been really marginalized by society and then blaming them for their own exclusion and misfortune. Yeah, it's easy to say somebody is lazy, but until you've been in their their shoes, you really don't know. And that's that's the... That's the hard part about any of these conditions we've lumped on somebody. Because you mentioned the homeless guy earlier, and I, you know, you think about the stories about any number of stories about homeless people and how they ended up in that position, and it's just tragic. And we just assume it's because they didn't work hard enough, right? Despite the fact that if you are living on the street, it's so much work to just have to constantly lug your possessions around, find a safe place to sleep, sleeping on the freezing cold ground. If you want to get any benefits, you have to interface with all these government agencies and social workers and like be your own case manager. It's like a, it's a full-time job. And then people sit on you and call you lazy for it. It's just, it's really unfortunate. Yeah. It's, it, it you know, like I said, it, it's kind of mind blowing when you sit back and you put push pause on it and you actually think about what you're saying. It's amazing to me. Um, and, the, and you, you touched on this quite, quite a bit about compassions for other people. And I'm like I said, I'm always willing to give people <laughs> give people that. But is there another way I should be compassionate to people besides just saying give them their time? Um, I think I think um, having um, kind of a humility that you, which you've already talked about, kind of knowing that you're not always going to know a person's context is really important. Um, because I do talk a lot in the book about like, well, if someone looks lazy, maybe they're depressed, maybe they're traumatized, maybe they're dealing with racism, like all of these other things. But I always want to be really careful to not send the message that, um, that we're entitled to a person's story, you know? So I think kind of, um, practicing questioning your knee-jerk reaction to people and then also realizing, oh, I'm never going to actually know someone's full story. Even if somebody tells me about some of those things they've been through, I'm probably only getting kind of the tip of the iceberg. So practicing being able to be both curious and compassionate, but also kind of humble and knowing you won't know the full story, I think that's also really important. So I just I just flipped the book open and found a, a page that I wrote on the indent dog ear, which is always helpful for the guy who's trying to find these things so when he prepares his notes he can find them. Yeah, anyways, I'm so organized it makes me sick. Uh, <laughs> About, I guess I, I, I'm talking about the, um, I'll just read it here. According to Pew, the 20% of Americans feel uh, anxious and overloaded by how much information is available online. However, 77% say they actually like having access to that much information. That That's, I mean, I, I can see, I'm surprised that 20% isn't higher than that. So I, I, there are times that I feel overloaded by the information that I have at my fingertips because just overwhelming because you can literally get anything that you want to know. Yeah, and you can get so much ever-evolving information about a crisis as it's happening, and sometimes it's information that is not factual because it's still developing on the ground or because there's mis lots of misinformation online, and so then you're getting all this like junk data, too. It, it, I'm surprised, too, that the figure in that survey was only in the 20% a range. I bet uh, if Pew has has updated it yet, I'm sure it would would tick up uh, this year. But um, also, yeah, people get really attached to the power or the illusion of power that being online and having your phone gives you. So people really don't want to part with it, and I completely get that and fall into it. I have to sometimes really remind myself, oh, okay. We're not going to know by the end of election night who won. I've been told this by a million statisticians. I can just like go take a nap. But it's really hard to kind of um, be Odysseus and like tie yourself to the mast of the ship or whatever and turn your phone off and bury it and go read a book because uh, that is, it's, uh, it's addictive and it's engineered to be that way. 
Yeah, and I, I, I agree with you, especially about election night, because I do my annual prediction shows for the next year on election night, because I, I know, I'm fully aware of that, like you just mentioned, that no matter what happens in that 9 o'clock hour, that nobody's going to know the results of the results of the election for at least the next 48 hours, at least. It seemed maybe 24 hours. So just to take that hour and concentrate on doing something else is great. But... And then when something breaks, news breaks, right? And we're all trying to learn as much as we can, as fast as we can. And like you said, the misinformation and the bad information and just the straight-up horrible information that comes out at times. And then, like, I, I remember, um, especially when this, this virus started to really bubble, I was trying to get out there and learn more about it. And then it's because it was changing so fast. And you were like, so when was that information put out? You know, and then you're trying to stay up with all that, mm-hmm. and it just became this whole, I don't know, a vicious cycle of trying, you know, fact check the facts checks, and it just, it really got overwhelming. Yeah, and I think it's us trying to assert control over an uncontrollable reality. We're always told that knowledge is power, but actually having too much information when it's not filtered and, and presented in a useful, empowering way can actually make us feel really powerless. And I'm, I was right on board with you. I was one of those people sharing articles that were like, don't take Advil, take Tylenol, because this one French foreign health minister said that Advil makes COVID symptoms worse. And then I had to realize, like, okay, this is way too tentative. We don't actually know this yet. But I wanted... I had to look back and go, oh, I was trying to feel like I was helping people. That's why I was sharing these things prematurely. And I need to find some other way to get that need met and to help people instead of just spreading really alarmist information when it isn't something we're confident in yet, you know? Yeah, and that, and that, I think that's probably been the biggest change in the world in the last, in my lifetime, because, well, I guess we'll have, you know, prior to my lifetime when the 24 hour news came on the, on the scene, because you went from having the news at what, six, 12 and 11 or whatever it was, your local newscast and the, the national like was pretty straightforward to now having news at your fingertips 24 seven. And now we literally have it at our fingertips 24 seven. And now some of us, well, I'm not, I'm not including myself in this category, are out there breaking news and doing all this other stuff. So it's just remarkable how the, I don't even know how to phrase it, how how the world has changed and how we've got, well, we have more control of what we get or how we get it. Well, I think we have less control on one on the other hand because we're getting it so much we we can't shut it off. Yeah, we're really in a time where things are divorced from context. You really don't get a sense of weight. And one fact that has very little scientific support might get way more shares than something that's supported by, like, the whole scientific community on a particular topic. And so you just really don't get a, a sense of what deserves my attention, what attention do I even have left to give, and I, I think you're exactly right to track it to the switch over to 24-hour news and then social media. They've had to fill those hours with content, which means they've had to produce a lot of news. And it gets harder and harder to know what the highlight reel is or should be. Um, and then we just get so overwhelmed and stressed. So this one just came in here. What's the difference between laziness and procrastination? Yeah, so procrastination is something that gets equated with laziness a lot, especially uh, in my field as as an educator. But if we look at procrastination research, what we see is that if someone is putting off a task that matters to them, so they agree, like, I want to get this paper done, but I just can't seem to do it, it's usually caused by either not knowing what the first step is in the task or or not being able to really divide the task up into manageable small chunks uh, or it's perfectionism just knowing that you're or feeling that your attempt will never be good enough so why even start and you just get totally paralyzed so uh, it's so funny that we equate procrastination with laziness because it's almost always driven by a person really really wanting to do well so much so that they have trouble doing anything at all because they feel like they're not going to measure up. Yeah, it's an interesting push when it comes to that point because I know there are things that 
like you said, you can't divide it. You don't know how to divide it up, or don't you know how to get to the end, or you know what the end is, but getting over that hurdle to get to where you... I'm thinking about the pottery rail, right, where you're sitting there, you got the block of clay in front of you, and everybody sees how it looks once you get it up. This is good, good solid audio right here. Everybody sees how it looks when it goes up, but there's that moment of trying to get it from the big block to vase-like. And it's mm. just fascinating to me watching those people do that. And then I try to do it, and it becomes this uh, mess, <laughs> for the lack of a better word. Um, I, I'm still, I've, you know, there's a few things in the life that I'm jealous of, but those people that can do that and make it look effortless, well, it's definitely not that, I can promise you. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, I'm envious of anyone who can do anything gracefully at all. <laughs> That's not me. Oh, come on. Give yourself some credit there. I'm sure there is something that you do that looks graceful. Maybe the writing. I, I write pretty pretty quickly, but I'm not coordinated. So anybody who can do something like physically artful, it's like, wow, you your control your brain talks to your hands in a way I cannot understand because I can barely talk to mine. <laughs> Uh, but let's talk about that for just a second because the art of writing I think is largely now getting overlooked even though it's more important today than ever Mm. yeah yeah I think because the internet has made it so easy for anyone to be a writer and we're constantly writing all the time I think it does kind of devalue it as a craft absolutely no I'm going the other direction though because we're sitting here talking instead of me writing about this right there's that it's so much easier to do the the video the audio the whatever instead of actually writing i mean yes we're all writing but i don't know if we're all writing well i mean obviously i know we're not all writing well because i've seen some of the uh, well my messages that are just horrific because i can't spell or lick or grammar well so i mean we're to write well is a skill that i, I don't know I think there's great value in it, so don't discount yourself. No, yeah, you're right. And you're right that we have moved um, to kind of a post-literate internet society because YouTubers are really big cultural figures. TikTok is so enormous. Even Instagram is very, like, video and audio-driven. It's always so funny for me to hear people say that that's easier than writing, though, because anytime I try to make anything that's audio or video format, all I can do is scrutinize, oh, there's, I can hear an ambulance in the background, oh, I have to edit this, it's so confusing, whereas for me, writing feels more like instant gratification. So it's so funny how that's not most people's experience of it, um, and that it's easier to work in those multimedia formats. That's why That's why this is an interesting intersection, right? Because you have your skills and I have mine, and that's, that's why this Okay, so you've met, you mentioned being from Chicago earlier, and now I've got to kind of dive into that a little bit. Cubs or White Sox? Oh God, <laughs> I I I want to abstain. I don't I don't care. Uh, I live closer to. I you know I kind of blame the Cubs winning the World Series with uh, everything that's happened in the world since then in 2016. <laughs> I, it's it was one of those weird, bizarre. Uh, children collider opened up a new alternate universe moment. <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> I appreciate that. Now that you've mentioned that, you need to put that in the, that needs to be the next book. Why, why the Cubs winning. <laughs> Ruins uh, the world. <laughs> Tore the, uh, I don't know, you just create something and call it whatever, but I think there is something to that now that you mention it, which is just remarkable. Man, no. I would get uh, a lot of hate if I if I published that. I would need to move. <laughs> but you, I'll publish. Uh, you could use my name, and I'll take the hate for it. <laughs> okay, sounds like a deal. <laughs> um, okay, so I had to, I had to go there cause now, man. That is so because you're right. Because there's been a lot in the world that would be if that event didn't happen. Would the, I mean? I know they're not related, but. You start opening that can of worms and you go, ooh. Anyways, back to laziness before my head explodes. <laughs> uh, the, the next thing I have, I had the other thing I had marked in the book 
and underlined. It's just the line, which surprises me because there's a lot of great stuff around it, is it's not your job to save the world, which there are times... I don't necessarily think I'm saving the world by any stretch of the imagination, but I always do feel, yeah, I could pick that up and do that for that person. Or, yeah, pretty much, I guess that's the line, right? How do we... Uh, I could make I could make that easier for somebody, or I could do that and just save them the hassle, instead of, you know, again putting you know putting more work on the plate instead of not. How do I, how do I see? Notice, notice I'm asking these questions for me now. How do I get <laughs> out of that? I mean, I guess there's always going to be that charitable aspect to it, but I guess there, at some point, I got to stop feeling that way. Correct. Well, I think the way that you're talking about a lot of what you do, it does sound like you're you're in the right place where you're thinking about individual people and how can I lighten this person's load? How can I do something where as soon as I help someone, I really see the impact. You know, I maybe see their gratitude or I see how it makes their life better. And I do think that's the approach to activism that is the most sustainable and mentally healthy. I think when I'm, when I'm talking about it's not your job to save the world, I think I'm especially talking about when someone is just staring in the face of a huge problem like climate change or how are we going to fix um, police brutality of black people in this country and how are we going to, you know, some some huge problem that's happening in a variety of different places and is caused by all these really big uh, top-down factors and a person just feeling despair because they don't even know how they could ever do something that matters in the face of it. Um, that's a really unmotivating place to be in it makes sense why people get emotionally to that place, especially with all the things we've been talking about with news and social media. But I think when, instead of trying to solve this problem or save the world, someone says, what can I do for people in my community? Who's someone in my neighborhood that I could get to know better? Or how can I make their life easier? Or what are some changes that I want to see on my block? Those things can be taken, I think, to a more manageable scale. And it's also more like I said, sustainable, because you actually see progress being made. You can actually feel like it's worth it. And so, yes, you might still need to say no to some of those people. It sounds like you might still have a little bit of a compulsive helper thing going on. I know I do. Um, But I think focusing on the small relationships and community stuff is is definitely the right way to go when you do have the energy to help. So I guess this this question just popped to the bubble because we've been talking about how Laziness got ingrained in American culture and negatively connotated. How has the rest of the world taken hold of this, or are there places that this just isn't an issue? I think it's an issue everywhere. Um, After I wrote the essay that kind of became this book, um, I had so many people reach out to me in India, in Turkey, in the Netherlands, in China, uh, the the essay's been translated into, uh, I can't even remember how many languages, uh, just from people who reached out and said, hey, I want to be able to share this with my friends who don't read English, can I translate it? Um, and one thing that I heard, um, I had a, a Chinese high school student reach out to me asking to translate the essay, and she kind of explained how in her culture in China, in these really competitive high schools um, that she's a part of, um, if you are quote-unquote lazy if you lack the drive to get something done it's really seen as kind of a like debasement of yourself like it's this really shameful thing in a way that the way she described it was almost like that it's like disgusting that it's like you are are doing yourself a disservice in this way that's just really shameful and it felt very different from the kind of christian sloth laziness is sloth kind of conception that we have in the U.S. just because it, it, it was so tinged with, like, you have failed yourself. You have done a disgusting thing to yourself. So um, suffice to say, I think these problems have been spread pretty much everywhere at this point, but I think they do take on a different flavor depending on your culture and what your culture says your responsibility is to other people or your family. And, you know, it finds different ways to twist the same knife or, or something like that. Well, again, I want to thank you for opening my eyes to to this. I don't want to say problem, but I don't know that I don't I don't have the vocabulary to put it a different way because you do have. I mean, in order to again take care of the community, take care of anything in the workplace, take care of the family, take care of whatever, you have to take care of yourself. You have to allow yourself to uh, what's the word recharge and allow yourself to be taken care of. To a degree. So again, 
Thank you for that awareness. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for, for having this conversation with me. This has been fun. And again, uh, laziness does not exist. Uh, Devin Price, Dr. Devin Price. Devin, uh, hey, I know you've had a busy day of doing these, and uh, so I, I want to appreciate you and wish you all the happiness in 2021. And hope, hopefully um, we can all find time to um, take a breath. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I hope so too. Thanks for having me and have a good, well, as good as, as we reasonably can be, uh, 2021. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Okay. Yeah. Um, I cut Devin short, not because he's a, he is a tremendous guest that goes without saying. I uh, do appreciate his work immensely. He's been doing interviews all day about this uh, major publish, publication coming out. Uh, I, I, I Seriously, I know I don't say this about a lot of books that come out, come through here, but um, buy this book and take it and, and read it. it. It's one of the, it's, um, it's not, like I said, it wasn't easy to read this book for me, as you guys probably have noticed throughout the course of the show. It really did strike a major chord with me in how I operate. So uh, I think it will hit some of you pretty hard out there if you take it seriously and read it through. And there's some great stuff in there. We talked a little bit about trying to um, overcome and adapt and learn um, more about this. So thanks, Devin, for uh, being a wonderful guest. But I, I did want to take a few minutes here and pause and reflect here on what has been 2020, right? Um, 2020 has been one of those years that I don't think we've had uh, another one like this. And I mentioned this part as part of the interview about with the COVID and the election and all that has gone on with it. And then some of the stuff in my personal life, you know, the health has still been weighing on the mind and laying on the body, so to speak. Definitely all year uh, started last December with the, the multiple surgeries and all that. And we just kind of still have been pushing through all of that. So I, I just wanted to take a minute and uh, wrap up 2020 with a um, time capsule of all of that stuff, right? Because it has been a year that we're not going to soon forget. And I don't know if we say that often enough. I mean, we look at 2019 and I can't really, I mean, it was just a, another blur. You look at 2017, 2015, you look at all those years you go back to 2011, 2012. I mean, been doing, I mean, 2011, right? I mean, that's when those bad boys started. And you look back and you see all the different changes, but it becomes this rapid fire blur down the line of all these different guests and all these different things and all the different things that go on in your personal life. And it just kind of goes by really fast. And um, between the end of the year and this book, it, I'm telling you, it's been amazing. It's been a, a very heavy week. And um, I'm very appreciative of the opportunities that I've had and have been given because of this program and the people in and around it through the years. Um, yeah. I can't, I can't speak enough about all of that. So I just want to take a minute and thank everybody for that. Um kind of really looking forward as well. We got, you know, anybody that knows, knows that I like to, um, knows that I used to like to book out a long time. Of course, I've had Devin booked for months and that was kind of the milestone as we flipped the counter. I've been looking forward to this for months, right? To flip into 2021. I mean, this book got here in October, right? So it's been a push, right? To get to this point. Now we're here. So now we start looking forward to 2021, right? And seeing what could be out there. And what is out there, especially show-wise, is just remarkable. There are two things that we're going to celebrate in a big way, and I don't know how or why. I mean, I know why, I guess. I mean, it just seems the thing to do. Uh, the 500th show, which will be mid-March, according if everything goes to schedule and everybody, you know, I keep showing up week after week. I'm not sure which date that is, but mid-March, right? 500, big number. 
Um, seems like yesterday was celebrating 300, which seemed ridiculous at that time, and now it's 500. I hate those round milestone numbers. Good thing they only creep up every couple of years. Um, perks of doing one show a week. You don't have to have those big milestone numbers thrown upon you too often. But 500 is another one of those numbers. I'm here to tell you, it's a number, man. It's a number. It's a real number. And, um, yeah, 500, right? I see it. I have it in the notebook there. And I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, Germantown Run probably want me to do live calls and reflect. And uh, part of me is going to go out and um, find a big guest. I don't know who. I have some ideas, but i got to find one. I mean, that's just the thing. Like, I have some, some ideas of really cool people who may or may I mean, most of them probably won't do it, but I think it'd be really cool to go out and get somebody like that. Um, Germantown Runner asked me what I'm doing New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. Not a damn thing. I mean, I'm staying home and doing the great part of my um, enjoying life. I mean, um, being uh, able to be home and... Uh, enjoy the kids what well, we again 2020 right has afforded me opportunities to do those type things um not having to run here or there as often yeah it's all good man it's all good i enjoy, I enjoy that i uh, have not heard that name so i will be um um looking into that and yes i have I have ventured another request for that guest, and uh, hopefully um, he'll be back on. We'll see. Um, I don't know. That's the thing. Like, yeah, there's a. Lot, that's the other thing, guys. I do appreciate immensely all of the people you throw out in front of me, and uh, I appreciate everybody that sends a request and says they want to be on. And I get way more people who want to be on and who should be on than I have shows, right? So that's the hard part. But that's okay. It's a good thing to have. It's very good right now to be doing the Mallory Report. I can I can promise you that. Very good. I'm, I'm, I, I still, every day I wake up and look at those numbers and go, there are that many people listening to that. I don't get it. I never have and I never will. Yeah, looking forward to seeing Nick back on as well. Yeah, I haven't had a lot of people. I mean, I haven't. I just haven't. And um, just how it goes. I, I do I do enjoy it immensely. So we've got about a minute left of uh, Mallard Report for 2020. So, again, just want to thank everybody. The, the people out there who I will never know your name who are listening on Spotify or iTunes, excuse me, Apple Podcasts or YouTube or wherever. I just want to take a moment and appreciate you. And uh, I don't know, I'm going to be uh, an asshole for here for a minute and say I don't know if enough podcasters appreciate their listeners. I know the ones that I talk to do, but there are so many out there who just take it all for granted and uh, assume that their people will be there, assume the people will pay to listen to them, and assume that it's all all gravy all the time and um yeah 20 2020 beat 2019 okay that's great we've got a lot of work to do and i'm not taking any of it for granted i want to have bigger guests i want to have better shows i want to do a lot and it's just work i'm just going to do the work and we're going to keep doing this happy new year everybody Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mount Report. Stay tuned for details on saving money at the Duck Pond Shop. I hope you enjoyed this report. Please subscribe so that you can join us again. And if you appreciate the show, leave us some stars or a review. For more notes from this show or other great shows, check out Mallard.com. A reminder, the views and opinions of the show are those of the host and guest and do not represent any sponsors, affiliates, or any other partners of the Mallard Report. Now for your money-saving tip. Promo code Mallard at checkout of duckpondshop.com where you can get your t-shirt, coffee mug, and other great products. That's promo code Mallard at checkout duckpondshop.com Until next week, stay safe and keep whacking.
You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.